Genesis chapter 3. As you, as you turn there, I would just simply, by way of introduction to our season of Advent, remind you that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, this passage 18 to 20, he reminds us of God's faithfulness. And in so doing, it says, as surely as God is faithful, all the promises of God find their yes in him, their yes in Jesus. The faithfulness of God is, is something we speak much upon and we speak much about here at Grace. And rightfully so, because God's faithfulness is, is perhaps that, that, that quality, the, the attribute of, of God's that really allows us to hang our coat upon, the coat of our faith upon, is, is his faithfulness. It's the faithfulness of God that, that reminds us and teaches us that we can depend on God. That we can, we can count on Him, that He will not disappoint us, that, that everything that He's spoken and said and promised, He will fulfill and He will carry out. But why is it that we believe and have confidence in His faithfulness? Is it simply because He claims to be faithful? Is it just because God said, I'm faithful? Oh, okay. All right, we'll just trust it. I mean, anyone can claim to be faithful, right? I, I could look at you and say, I'm a, I'm, I'm a faithful person. I can make that claim. Any of us in here could. But if I make that claim while I don't live out that claim, do you believe me to be faithful? Certainly not. Well, we trust God to be faithful because not only has He claimed to be faithful, and indeed He has throughout Scripture, but not only has he claimed that, he has demonstrated it time and time again. He has shown himself to be faithful. So we celebrate, re rejoice in the faithfulness of God as we come to Advent. Advent is a, a time of great anticipation. It's a time in which we look forward on one hand to the day of Christmas, the day in which we celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation, the, the time we celebrate the, the coming of God in the flesh. We rejoice in that, and rightly so. But the season of Advent is also a time in which we're reminded that because of that, we also anticipate the return of Christ. That God has said that He will come again. And so we look forward to the second coming of Christ. We trust God to be faithful to do what He's promised to do because we've seen His faithfulness in the past. And so we are those who eagerly await that day. And we eagerly await the return of Christ because we know the promise of Christ. We know He is faithful. And so what we want to do this Advent season is we want to consider five promises of God in the Old Testament, how Christ fulfilled those promises to show that He indeed is faithful, that He is not just a promise-making God, He is the promise-keeping God. God. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you as we begin this time of Advent and anticipation, celebrating your coming. And we pray, God, that over the next five to six weeks, God, that you would remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us that every promise made by you is a promise kept by you. God, we live in a day where promises are made left and right and few are held. God, let us look to you as the promise-keeping God and know your faithfulness. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, let's read together this morning, Genesis chapter 3, we'll read the verse, first 15 verses. Genesis chapter 3, an account that many of you are probably quite familiar with. The word of the Lord says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Then the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. This passage is very well known. It's a foundational passage, really both theologically and Practically, we think about the word of the Lord and the, the gospel narrative. Theologically, it's the, really the foundation for the biblical narrative and the, the story of redemption. What God did, why God did it. It's foundational for us understanding the gospel. But practically, it answers so many of our questions. What went wrong? Why is the world broken? Why is there so much suffering? Why do we deal with sin? Why is it all around us? And so it's a foundational passage for us to look at and where we appropriately should begin this morning, we consider the promise-keeping God that we worship. I want us just to walk through the passage and then consider how Christ kept this promise, and then we'll look at what it means for us practically just in our everyday life. Starting there in verse 1, you see the craftiness of the servant. We're told that he's more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And we're reminded instantly that, that Satan is a created being. He is not 
eternally existed. He is not on par with the Lord. He does not rival the Lord. He is a created being that rebelled against God. And so he is limited. He is finite. We instantly see here Satan's schemes of deceit and truth-twisting. Look what he, he says right away. We're first introduction to him. Did God actually say? Did he really say that? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, he did. If you just flip back one chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, we read there, the Lord commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You shall not eat it. For in that day that you eat of it, you surely die. Yeah, God did say that. He actually did say it, Satan. But Satan comes in and he he starts twisting. He starts deceiving. In verses 2 and 3, I would just point out to you, we need to recognize the goodness of God here. In verse 2 and 3, why does God tell them not to eat of it? So that they will not die. We see the goodness of God in commanding Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree. Listen, I I think we need to understand, we need to see here before we go any further, that that our job is not to know every aspect of why God tells us to do something or not to do something. That's not our job. Our job is to trust God to do what is good for us in His wisdom. Just like as a child. It wasn't my job to know everything angle and every reason and motivation for my parents to say something and tell me to do something. Children, that's not your task. Your task is to honor and obey your parents. It's just very clear, right? The same thing, when I come before the Lord, I don't hear something, read something, I go, why? I trust His goodness. I trust His wisdom. It was the goodness of God to command them not to eat of it. Why? Because they would die. Man had no clue what death was, but God did. God understood that. And in his kindness, in his goodness, he commanded man not to eat of the tree. Right? It's the goodness of God on display. Satan speaks in with deceit. Satan comes in, and, and what does he do first in verses 4 and 5? First, he, he questions God. He questions, did God really say that? And he, he brings in a little doubt. Did he really say that? Just calls in a little bit of doubt in their minds. And then right after that, what does he follow up with? After planting a little seed of doubt in their minds, he follows right in behind by uttering a lie. Oh, God, God knows that if you eat, your eyes will be open and you'll what? You'll be like him. You'll be like him. That's what he knows. And so he first plants a seed of doubt and then he speaks a lie. Now notice The lie is what? It's very believable. It's very believable. It's not one that's like, well, uh, uh, if if you eat of the tree, boom, you're going to turn into a pigeon. Mm, I don't know. Probably not. No. Oh, you'll be like him. Oh, I will. Hmm. All right. It's very believable. Friends, you need to understand, this is the same pattern we see today. It's the same way that that Satan continues to work. He continues to come in and and just utter little questions. Did God really say that? Let me just plant a little seed of doubt right here. And then he utters a lie that is quite believable. He's not saying, hey, listen, uh, if you do this, you can go jump off the roof and you'll fly. No, we're all going, no, we're not doing that. That's a lie. 
Oh, he utters very believable lies that we just fall right into. It's the same way we continue to see him working today. Verse 6 here, the woman just, we just have a very simple matter of fact. So, when the woman saw, what did she do? She went and she ate of the tree. Now, why does she do this? Well, at this time, you need to recognize at this time, there is no enmity between the woman and the serpent. It doesn't exist. It's not there. There's no opposition between them, no hostility from the woman's perspective. Nothing in her sounded a siren. There was no warning bells going off in the back of her mind. There was no gut-level feeling that something's way off, something's wrong, that I shouldn't believe him. Why did she follow his temptation? Well, why wouldn't she at this point? There's no enmity there. The woman noticed three things. She looks at the tree and she notices what? The tree is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. And the tree is to be desired to make one wise. Now, if you, if you fast forward, you don't have to flip there. I'll write this down, though, and you can look at it later. If you fast forward towards the end of Scripture, in John's letter, in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, listen to what John writes. Remember, what are the three things that she sees? She sees that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, you get into 1 John 2, listen to this. John's writing to the church. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, the, the framework that that, the, that Eve looked and she saw the tree. It was good for food, delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise. It's the same as that framework that John writes of and uses to warn us of the danger of following in after the things of the world. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, the desires of the flesh, John warns us of. It was a delight to the eyes, the desires of the eyes. And it was desired, to be desired to make one wise. Oh, the pride of life. How tempting those could be. Now, what was the context that John wrote? The same context of Genesis 3. What John warns of is that he's writing in the context of life. And the one who follows after the world, who loves the world, will pass away, will die, will cease. But the one who does the will of God will abide into eternal life. It is an issue of life and death that we see in the garden that John warns us of as we pursue Christ and live for Him. Now we continue reading there in Genesis 3, an important statement that we don't need to skim over in verse, the tail end of verse 6. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. He was there. It wasn't as though Adam was down the street chopping wood and then walked up and went, hey, what's going on? Now he was with her. He was there. He was watching. He was listening. This is problematic, men. This is problematic. This isn't a sermon on biblical manhood, but it should be stated out that in this moment, we look at Scripture and we see this. We as men do not need to follow the example of Adam. We do not need to be those who stand by and watch 
as Satan deceives and manipulates those around us. Men, we are to be godly leaders. We are to lead, provide, and protect in the home and at church. That is who we are. And it's not, lest you misread and misunderstand the Bible, it's not because women are lesser, they're not as important, they're not in the image of God, and so they're on a different tier. It's not because they're just weak and can't do anything, they're just helpless. No, it's because that is our role. It is what God has called us to be and called us to do. We are to be leaders, we are to be providers, we are to be protectors, and here Adam failed in his role. We must not do the same, men. We must not do the same. Verses 8 through 13, I would just point out some key responses. Let's, let's look at the responses of the man and the woman after they sin. What, what is their response in this moment? They feel the consequences of sin, right? And so look at their response. In verse 7, you, say, you see shame and, and insecurity. They, they heard the sound. They hid from the presence of the Lord in verse 8. So you see shame, insecurity. We see hiding. And in verse 10, what does he say? I was afraid. There was fear. And then in verses 12 to 13, we have that good old lesson that we've all learned all so well of blame shifting. They're instantly pointing blame. God comes and, and says to the man, what have you done? What's happened? He calls the man to account first. The man is responsible. And so he comes to the man first. And what does he do? Uh, the woman that you gave to me gave me the food. I mean, Adam ups the ante there. He doesn't just blame the woman. He blames God. Hey, you're the one that gave her to me. What were you thinking? I mean, look at her. You know? Adam. Oh, man, Adam. Well, then the woman, she's no better. I mean, she's like, oh, the serpent. It was a serpent. I mean, that guy, he caused me to do it. I mean, they're just blaming everybody. Sin, shame, insecurity, hiding, fear, blame, all of that. The responses of man. But look at the response of God. What is, what is God's response? Man hides in shame and fear. What does God do? He calls and pursues man. The omniscient, omnipresent, holy, just God. Don't forget who He is. We shouldn't be so lazy and ignorant to think that God didn't know what happened. We shouldn't think that God was not totally justified had he just wiped man out of existence at that point. He's holy and he's righteous. He's omnipresent. He's all-wise, all-knowing. He's not caught off guard. But what does he do? He has every right to purge man from creation, but instead he pursues man. He shows mercy. He shows grace. He comes to man. And instead of just wiping man from existence, we have the whole of the remainder of Scripture and history as a testimony of God's goodness and God's grace. Lest we go, well, where is the grace of God? I don't know how long it's going to take for me to read this to you. But there's a lot of testimony of God's grace that we can read of and we can testify to that we are here. God is just. God is gracious. But I don't want you to miss this either. 
Look what God says to the serpent. He speaks a curse to the serpent. He speaks a curse to the serpent. Now, he curses Satan, but he does not curse man. He curses Satan, but he does not curse man. Yes, there were consequences. He does speak consequences. He does judge. The righteous judge of creation does pass judgment upon man for his rebellion. He does do that, but he does not speak a curse to man. There were real consequences to their sin, but it was not void of grace. We'll talk more about that in just a second. It's the same. It's true today. We, we may try to hide our sins. We may try to blame other people for the, the way we act, the way we think, the way we, we, we respond. At the end of the day, we can't blame everybody else. We are responsible for our own sins and our actions. If you are constantly pointing to everyone else, you've bought the lie of Satan. You've bought the lies of the world. We are responsible for our sin. And there are consequences to our sin. But, just as in the garden that we'll see, God's grace seen in Genesis 3 is still being poured out today. This is why the hymn writer wrote, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Oh, are we sinful? Absolutely. Do we rebel? Absolutely. But God's grace exceeds our sin and our guilt. And we need to understand that. We need to know that. Listen, Genesis 3 verses 1 through 15 is the first display of God's mercy and grace in the biblical narrative. Oh, sin abounded. In Genesis 3, 1 to 14, sin abounded. But grace abounded all the more. Grace that exceeded our sin and our guilt. And if you sit and if you could just somehow forget everything you know, Maybe there's somebody in here this morning who has never heard the gospel. You've never read the scriptures. You've never been in church. Perhaps that's you, and you would sit down, and you just start reading in Genesis 1. And if you could pretend to be in that person's shoes or remember back when that was you, and you just started reading Genesis 1, and you read through of everything that the Holy Lord does in Genesis 1 and 2 and creating everything and seeing that it was good, and then you come to Genesis 3, and man rebels. The last thing you expect is for the omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omniscient, holy, just, righteous God to show mercy and grace. But he does. It's unexpected. It's unmerited. It's unbelievable. His grace and kindness shown to those who rebel against him. Verse 15 is the greatest display of grace we have here. It's the greatest display of grace. Look at what he says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a great display of God's grace. Here, first, here's what we see as far as a display of grace is we see the good gift of God in bringing enmity between man and Satan. In that moment, Eve didn't have that inclination of hostility or opposition between her and Satan. But we do. Why? Because God gifted us with enmity between us and Satan. It is a good gift of the Lord. 
The curse of the Lord was upon Satan, but that curse upon Satan was a good gift of God to man. So we have gut feelings. We have red flags. We have a sense of something not being right. That doesn't mean that we won't fall into it, right? doesn't mean that we won't run after sin's temptations, but it means we recognize wrong. We recognize and we sense the enmity, the offness between us and Satan. The second thing we see is the mark of God's grace in verse 15 is the word of hope that he speaks. The word of hope. Look at, look at what he says. Not only will there now be enmity between Satan and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, but he speaks a word of hope. He, singular, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, singular, heel. God speaks a word of hope. This, verse 15, is the fountainhead of mercy and grace in the Bible. It's the beginning of messianic prophecy, and from this point on, we will see God continuing to reveal the hope that will be in the Messiah. We continue to see that there will be one who comes that resolves the conflict. We continue to hear this sense of hope. We continue to see that it is, or we, we read here and we begin to see that what was broken will be fixed. What was marred will be made new. What was lost will be restored. It's the first sign of hope. You understand, hope was not present in Genesis 1 and 2 because hope wasn't needed. It wasn't needed. But then when, when man falls, hope is needed. Sin comes upon Adam and Eve and they experience the weight and the shame and the guilt and the condemnation and the separation and they therefore needed hope. And God immediately speaks hope into not only their life but the life of all of mankind. All of mankind. There will come one who will bring a fatal blow to Satan. Oh yeah, Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. He will bruise your head. The head, it is a fatal blow. He will inflict a mortal wound. The seed of Eve would prevail and inflict a mortal, fatal blow upon Satan. It is the first message of good news in Scripture. It is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first word of hope. The first word of hope. It's a declaration that God's people will one day triumph over Satan. Will one day triumph over Satan through one who would finally defeat them. Listen, you know what we don't see here? We don't see God saying, tough break. I'm just going to allow you to continue in your sin. Because I know that if you continue in your sin, you'll be happy and things will go well for you. And if you continue in your sin long enough, you will no longer have guilt. And you'll no longer experience the weight and the condemnation of that sin because you'll just experience it for so long and it'll take care of itself. We do not see that because that is not true and that is not right and that is not what happens. The longer you live in sin, the longer you spiral down into guilt and shame and the weight and the oppression and the condemnation of sin. Sin upon sin upon sin never brings hope. It never brings hope. 
But hope is found in Christ and in His forgiveness and His grace that He makes all things new, that in Christ you are a new creation. In hope, or in Christ, is hope found. This is the good news. And the good news that we see in Scripture is that when we hear these words, that He, singular, it's not, it's not they, the offspring, as far as a group, but it is a particular, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. Jesus is the head-crushing Messiah. That's the promise kept. Jesus is the head-crushing Messiah. You see, when we come to Genesis 3.15, we're reading along, and like any good book, you get to this point and you read that and you go, wait a minute. And you back up and you read that again. And if you're thinking about the narrative of Scripture, then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that's cool. Like, who's going to do that? Like, God looks and says, there will be one of your seed that will crush Satan. Who will that be? And it kind of gives that anticipation that you want to flip the pages. You want to get down to the back of the book. If you ever read a book and you, you got to something and you went, mm, I'm going to read the conclusion, right? Some of you guys are disciplined not to do that, but I read the conclusion. It's like, what happens? Find out and then come back. It makes you want to do that. Well, that's it. It's Christ. If you read ahead, you read through Scripture, you see that Christ is the head-crushing, promise-keeping, redeeming, restoring, reconciling God. He is the Messiah. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the enmity spoken of between Satan and man. We see it's obvious. We see brokenness everywhere. We see the need for forgiveness and mercy and grace and an atoning sacrifice on every page as you just go through the Old Testament, page after page after page after page. Enmity, brokenness, shame, guilt, and the need for atonement. See, God graciously made it very apparent, very clear that we need a Savior. We need redeeming. Some of you experience that today. Some of you feel that today. You come bearing the weight of sin. You come bearing the the condemnation, the smothering feelings of guilt and shame. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you're, you're hiding that sin. Maybe you're, you're blaming others and, and doing exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. You're saying, well, I wouldn't be this way if it wasn't for them. All this, all of this, because of man's rebellion and our incapability of doing anything about it on our own. We can't do anything about it on our own. We need Messiah. We need a Savior. We need the one who would crush the head of Satan. We need Christ. See, the promise that God spoke in Genesis 3.15 was kept in the sending of Christ. Just hear this in the New Testament. Matthew 1.21. Jesus comes. What are we told? She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Paul wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, he said this, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what did he do when he did that? He disarmed 
the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Hebrews 2, 14-15, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise, talking about Christ, partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 Corinthians 15.55-57 Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote Romans 16, 19-20. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet, under your feet. And then finally we turn to the end, the conclusion in Revelation 20, verse 10. We read the final, ultimate fate. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Christ has won the victory. He has defeated death. He has triumphed over Satan. He has dismantled the rulers and authorities. He's destroyed the works of the devil. And we simply now await his return and the judgment has been made. We're just waiting the final display of justice where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. He will be punished. He's not doing the punishing. Satan will be punished. So why does this matter? Why does this matter? Beyond just knowing the narrative of Scripture, which is important, what impact does this have on our lives today? Let me give you five reasons this matters to close our time today. Five reasons. Here's the first one. Genesis 3.15 reminds me that God did not abandon man in Genesis 3 and he will not abandon us now. God is not an abandoning God. This is not to say that he overlooks sin. It's to say that he's dealt with sin and that you need not remain in it. He will not abandon you because of your sin. He calls you away from it. The the condemnation and, and guilt of sin that weigh you down has been graciously removed by Christ when we turn to Him in faith. It's removed by Christ, though, I would remind you. When we turn to Him in faith, it's not removed by being religious. If you just come in and you just seek to add religion... All that's going to do is mount up guilt upon guilt upon guilt. The sin and condemnation is removed when we look to Christ, knowing that He did not abandon us. 
but he has truly given us hope. And that hope is in Christ. You see, Satan's going to continue to hurl lies. He's going to continue to deceive. He's going to continue to say things like, there's no way out. You can't get out of this. He's going to continue to say things like, God is actually being really condemning of you, and God's people are being condemning of you because they're saying blank. You fill in the blank as sin. And I would say multiple people around here would say, okay, yeah, I know, you're talking to me. And we have been there. When we're confronted with our sin, and all of a sudden we look and go, oh, well, he's just being condemning of me because he's saying that sin. Well, no, God's word says that sin. That God has not abandoned you. God has graciously supplied a Savior to save you and redeem you and to give you hope. That's the truth of the gospel. The second reason it matters is this. Is Genesis 3.15 helps us understand the character of God. It helps us understand who God is. That He is indeed fully holy. But He is also fully merciful and gracious. We see God's character on display. And we understand, we're reminded again, that one attribute of God never trumps another. He is fully who He is. And so at the cross, what it reminds us is at the cross, sin is punished and sinners are saved. That's what it reminds us. That sin is punished because of the holiness of God and sinners are saved because of the grace of God. All at the cross. And we must know this. In relation to our own sin, we must know it, that God is loving and He is gracious, but God is holy as well. And God never looks and goes, well, I'm so loving and gracious, I'm just going to turn a blind eye to your sin. He doesn't look and go, well, that's okay, times have changed. That's a lie of Satan. It's a lie of Satan. Wake up. Wake up. God is loving. God is gracious. But He is holy. There's consequences to sin. He doesn't just overlook it. Oh, but the beauty, the beauty of the gospel is what? You remember my chance to me write this down, look at it later, but Romans 3.26, God says that in, uh, that in Christ, God was both the just, he's both just and the justifier. He was both just and the justifier. He was the one that showed complete holiness and justness and righteousness, but he was also the one that justified by his grace to Christ. The third reason that's important is that it steadies my faith today because I know that every attack of Satan is merely a flesh wound. It's merely a flesh wound. All you Monty Python people have all kinds of scenes going through your head right now, right? It's merely a flesh wound. He cannot, he will not destroy the people of God. Satan can't do it. He may bruise your heel, but his head has been crushed. He can't destroy God's people. He deceives us, we fall for it. He tempts us, we take it and eat. He lies to us, we believe it. He accuses God of falsehood, and we trust the deceiver over the truth. All flesh wounds. But we need not despair, but we need to look to Christ daily in faith, trusting him, leaning upon his finished work on the cross. We look to him and we know that every attack of Satan upon us is merely a flesh wound that we are dealing with a defeated 
foe. We need to remember that to steady our faith. The fourth reason, the fourth reason is important, is it helps me to persevere to the end because I'm confident in the ultimate victory that is in Christ. It helps me to persevere to the end because in Christ I know the victory is His. I know that He is indeed the head-crushing Messiah. It was written. He completed it. He defeated Satan. He is the head-crushing Messiah. So no mere bruised heel will deter the people of God. It will not cripple us to the point that we lay along the road and we cannot continue on in faith. It's just a bruised heel. He has His head crushed. The victory is won. We simply await the day in which final justice is served. That's the day we anticipate, we long for, we look to, we think about Advent. The final reason, the final reason today why this is important is it gives us authentic hope because we know that God is faithful. It gives us authentic hope because we know God is faithful. Does anyone know what the word of the year is for 2023? Any guesses? Authentic. It's the word of the year. Living in a day in which AI is one of the most popular conversations to have, what's the extent of it? Can we trust that? Is that really a true picture? Right? Or is that somehow an AI-generated picture? Is that an AI-generated voice? Is that an AI-generated paper and writing and book and song and sermon? Is it authentic? Is it real? Or is it an imitation? We were surrounded everywhere by these high-profile moral failures. We see left and right people falling who claim to be one thing, but they weren't. We live in a celebrity culture that is great and full of masks, but when we re- remove the mask and take it off, it's not what it looked to be. Social media exposing things left and right and left and right. People manufacturing what they want to appear and how they want to appear and how they want to look to people. We are a people starving for what is authentic. It's the reason apps like Be Real. Any Be Real users in here? Right? Why? What is Be Real's appeal? The name. Be Real. Oh, I can look at that and see how people really are. The funny thing is, is what do we do? It's Be Real time. Everybody pose. Right? I don't know. Smile. Oh, let me retake it. We're not even real and Be Real. Right? It's why Be Real is so popular. We want authenticity. We want what is not false. We want what is not an imitation. We want what is true to one's personality and character. We want what is genuine. We don't want a fake. Listen, do you realize that the world is promising you all kinds of hope? Do you realize it's saying hope in this, hope in that, and all will be well? Feminism promises hope for women. Critical theory promises hope for a solution to injustice. Gender reassignment promises hope for gender dysphoria. Materialism promises hope for comfort. Athletic, academic success promises hope for personal meaning and value and success. Hope around every corner. And all of these hopes are temporary. 
all of them are fleeting. All of them will leave. All of them will disappoint. Yeah, you can hope in those things, but they will fail you. They will fail you. Our hope is to be found in Christ alone. The one who is faithful. The one in whom you find authentic hope. Not an imitation. Not something that looks shiny on the outside, but then disappoints when you see the inside. But one who is faithful to the end. Brothers and sisters scattered throughout this auditorium with the splendor and the glory of gray hair or no hair for many years as a testimony can look to you and I hope you wear that gray hair with pride to look and say, God has been faithful all my days. Has it always been easy? No. Testimony after testimony seated in seats across this auditorium of men and women who can attest to the faithfulness of God. Thanks be to God for gray hair. But thanks be to God primarily for His faithfulness and authentic hope that is found in Christ. See, God spoke hope for the first time here. And we've seen it carried out throughout history in our lives. Through the sending, the living, the dying, and the resurrection of Christ. So we live with authentic hope in the God who is ever faithful. Maybe you're, you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever, and, and you would say, I absolutely see and sense and understand and experience and know that the world is broken. I, I, I experience sorrow, I experience the guilt, the shame, the blaming, the weight of sin. I would just ask you to consider the pronouncement of hope the display of grace and mercy of God in Genesis 3, the continued display and message of grace and mercy throughout Scripture, and the good news that Jesus Christ came, the Son of God, to live a perfect life and die on the cross for your sins. He rose again from the grave, victorious over death. And the great hope of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead will be saved. Hope is not found in attending church. Hope is found in confessing Christ as Lord. Would you turn to Christ? Would you turn from sin and turn to Christ in faith today, unbeliever? Would you do that today? Believers, I would just leave you with the same words that Pastor Matt left you with in the call to worship. From Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is our confession of hope? What is our hope in life and death? That we are Christ. We are His. 
He has saved us. He is our hope in life and death. Let's pray. Faithful God, we bow this morning and we thank you, God, for the hope that is found in Christ. God, I pray this morning for those seated in this auditorium or perhaps listening online, God, who are living under the deceit of Satan. Some may not even know it, they don't realize it. God, would you open their eyes to see the truth? Would you help them to understand that the, the guilt and the, the weight and the shame is absolved, removed, dealt with only through the blood of Christ, only through faith in you, O oh Lord? And I pray that you'd work in their lives. Show them your great grace. And God, I pray that, that we as believers, that we would not grow weary. That God, we would persevere to the end knowing that you are faithful. Knowing that as we struggle through life, knowing that as we receive bruises upon our hill from the adversary, we stumble along the way, we meet challenges. God, I pray that you would grant us by your grace perseverance to the end. Knowing that that you, Lord Jesus, are the head-crushing Messiah. You've won the victory. And our hope is in you and in you alone, O oh God. So let us run with endurance the race set before us, O oh God. Fixing our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.